Um, I'm going to share my testimony tonight. And um, I, I wanted to apologize for being passionate about it, but I really don't want to apologize for being passionate. I thought about Jessica and the worship team. I thought how we are so blessed when they are passionate with what God's given them. And um, Bill Gothard, he's somebody from my generation, the new generation doesn't even know about. But he says how God puts a life message on each of our lives. And um, I think we just need to be passionate about what God's put in our lives. And when we all do that, the body of Christ is going to be the most blessed. So, and I'm also passionate about what I'm sharing because it's not just words on a paper. It's something I've lived for 26 years, and it has so blessed my life that I am very passionate to share it with other people. And even if nobody my generation was here and just the young people would be here, I am so excited because I have a passion to give what God's put in my life to you because I feel like it's life-changing. On the back cover of my book, I said, the truth in this book could change your life and the world. And um, I strongly believe that, and I think as I share tonight, you'll understand why I, I wrote that. I'm going to share about motherhood and the blessing of children. And um, I believe this message applies to you no matter who you are or where you are in life, whether you're single or married or whether you're divorced or an empty nester or whether you're old or young, because I feel like God's truth is God's truth. And we're all called to know God's truth, especially because we're called to disciple the next generation. And how can we know how to disciple them unless we know what God says? So I believe God has something for every one of you tonight, no matter where you're at. As most of you know, I'm the mother of eight children. I have six girls and two boys, and I always say God knew, God knows who to give boys to, and God knows who to give girls to. So I'm glad I got more of the girl end of things. Um, my oldest daughter is here tonight. Her name's Allison, and she's been married four years and has delighted us with our first baby granddaughter, Eleanor, who we totally love, and they live in Spokane. My next daughter has been married three years, and her and her husband, I think three years, and our pastor's in Walla Walla. Washington and her pastor's wife is the one that will be coming up for a conference. My 21-year-old son is a drummer in a band in Germany, and they're believing that their music, God will use their music to change the music industry and to change the world that way. My 19-year-old daughter, um, God gifted her with a um, with fashion design, which is like, where did that come from? And um, she has words spoken over that God will use her in the fashion industry. And so she's over receiving training now in Seattle at the Seattle Art, in Art Institute and going to Christchurch Kirkland. Um, and then we have um, four children left at home. Molly, 17. Rachel, 14. Who's here? Is that right? 14? <laughs> Maggie's 13. And James is 10. And um, I've also homeschooled my children the last 21 years. So you probably think, well, Lisa must be one of those natural mother types who loved babies growing up, you know, always was carrying the babies in church and babysat and couldn't wait to be a mom. And you probably also think I'm a very, very patient person to have homeschooled because most moms say, I couldn't homeschool, I'm not patient. Well, um, everything I am today is not nat is, does not come to me naturally. Everything in my life that I am today is by the grace and mercy of God. Um, I was not a baby lover growing up at all. I had no love, natural love for children whatsoever. I babysat rarely, and I, I can only remember holding a baby one time before I had my own children. And, um, and I am not a patient person. Anger and impatience are one of my greatest sin areas. And... Um, so I, I heard a man named Norm Stone speak once, and God told Norm to walk across America seven times for the unborn. 
And so he was obedient to that call, an amazing act of obedience. Over an 18-year period, he walked back and forth across America seven times when he, in an organization he founded called Walk America for Life. And he shared that God has a sense of humor because Norm does not like to walk. And every day he'd walk at least 20 miles. And so when I heard that, I thought, God, you do have a sense of humor. Because I, I can picture God in heaven saying, who can I put the message of motherhood and homemaking on? I know, Lisa. She's perfect. She doesn't like kids. And she's angry and impatient most of the time. She'd be perfect. And I know that's what he did. And I think God sometimes takes the most or the least likely person and chooses them because then he gets the glory for it. So over the last 26 years, he has carved that message of motherhood and um, the blessing of children into my life. And I'm going to share with you tonight my journey kind of, of um, revelation that brought transformation to my life. I want to tell you some of the things I've done for the last 26 years. I've been pregnant for 72 months, which is six years of my life, and then nurse babies almost another six years. Um, and I, I was one of the last holdouts on disposable diapers, so I, I counted up. I've changed at least 40,000 cloth diapers. I mean, it could be more. And, and then I washed them. <laughs> I've cooked. Um, we've been married about 30 years. I've been a mom for 26 years. I've cooked about 28,000 meals and washed dishes at least 28,000 times. And this is a very low estimate. O over the last years, I've gotten in my car at least 7,000 times to run kids to ballet, piano, <laughs> violin, baseball, youth group. And that is a very conservative estimate. Probably over the last 26 years, too, most nights I've gotten up with at least one child or other for some reason. And I still, even though my youngest is 10, I still get up at least once nightly to do a blood sugar level check on Rachel, who has diabetes. And um, so that's a lot of nights of getting up. I want to tell you something else I've done for the last 26 years. I've been raising world changers. I've been raising young men and women who are going to change history and who will leave a mark on the church and on our nation and on eternity, I believe. Someone could pay me a million dollars to leave my job of full-time homemaking, and I would not do it because I believe I have one of the most important jobs in the world. So I'm going to share with you um, just some things I've learned over the years. When Jim and I got married in 1978, I did not plan. We did not plan on having eight children. And I can't ever remember even really talking about it. It's like... I don't know, we just kind of fell into it, you know, be married a couple years, think, okay, it's time to have a child, and okay, she's two, let's have another baby. I don't, we didn't really have a plan at all. And when I was pregnant with our third, um, our first son, I was a young mom with, you know, pregnant, struggling, struggling with two toddlers and feeling overwhelmed. And Jim said, you need to go get a Christian book on motherhood because I know without a vision, you're really going to struggle in what you're doing. So I went and tried to find one book and couldn't find it, ended up getting another book that changed our lives. And I read a book by Mary Price called The Way Home. And God used that book to change and challenge how we thought about children. She shared how what the world says about children, the, the church believes more what the world says about children than what God says. And as we started looking at that, we thought, that is so true. We, that's how we think. And so I'm going to start by sharing with you some things that God says in his world about children in his word about children. And then I'm going to contrast that with th things the world, the, that the world says. Psalm 127, verse 3 through 5 says, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. 
How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They shall not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. So God says three things. He says children are a gift and a reward and a blessing. Now, God is God, and he could have chosen any words in the language that he wanted. And he chose those words, gift, reward, and blessing. And that's very significant. Um, He also says that a man with a full quiver is a blessed man. Now, the world says the total opposite. The world says children are a burden, a hassle, and an inconvenience. It says they'll ruin your career, and they'll keep you from self-fulfillment. And these are comments that I have heard probably in the last several months, just being out in the world. I can't wait for vacation to be over till my kids get back in school. Or, oh, I'm so glad I have this job, I get a break from my kids. This came on one of our Christmas cards and it made me so sad. It said, one down, three to go, can't wait till we're empty nesters. Eight kids, I can't even handle my two. I mean, those are very common things you hear out in the world, which is the total opposite of what God says. God says they're a gift and a reward and a blessing. Um, Even if we stopped at that verse tonight, or if that's all God had ever shown me, that was enough to change my life. Because I thought, who doesn't want a gift and a reward and a blessing? I don't know of anyone that doesn't. It's like they're good things that we want. And it changes everything to look at your child and to think you are a gift from God to me. Um, just, just even d- preparing this study, I mean, I've known these things for a lot of years and wrote my book and everything, but just going over these again, when I'd go tuck my kids in at night, I'd say, you are a gift from God to me. It cha- it, you know, just having the word washed me again just was really good for me. Okay, another verse, Psalm 128, verse 1 through 4. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. You will be happy and it will be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children like olive plants around your table. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. Now in Bible times, olive plants were considered a sign of wealth, and this man had a fruitful wife, so it meant that he had lots of little olive plants around his table, and that was a sign of wealth and blessing. Blessing in the Bible, I can't find any place where blessing meant less. It always meant more, like it meant more land, more money, more cattle, more influence. And here God is saying a man with a lot of children is a blessed man and that he's wealthy. Again, the world says the exact opposite. The world says children are expensive and they'll make you poor. And I don't know if you guys have noticed, about once a year in the paper, they'll have an article saying the latest statistics of what it costs to raise a child from birth through college. And I, I could be wrong. I, didn't, I don't have the most recent one, but I think it was something like $300,000 from birth through college. And you know that's so official sounding. It sounds like, whoa, and we all believe that. Well, that's enough to scare anybody from having any children ever, because like, who can afford that? Okay, another, another verse. We're going to go back to Psalm 127, verse 5. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. So it's saying here that children are like arrows. And I thought, what are arrows used for? You know, they can be used to shoot game for provision, but here it says they're in the hands of a warrior. So obviously they're used for war, which means they're used to... Um, They're used for offense, defense, to defeat the enemy, and to gain ground. So here God's saying that our children are one of the greatest resources we have in spiritual warfare to extend the kingdom of God in the earth. Now listen what the world says. The world says children use up the world's limited resources, and so we should severely limit our childbearing if we care anything about the planet. I read an article in the paper this last year. A woman chose not to have any children, and that was her contribution to saving the planet. 
And in you know, worldly wisdom, that sounds like, wow, isn't that noble? But I don't see anything in the Word of God that supports that at all. Okay, Proverbs 14, verse 28. In a multitude of people is a king's glory, but in the dearth of people is a prince's ruin. Here God's saying that a large population is a blessing to any king in any nation. And you think, well, why? Three, I, th I thought of three things. It ensures an adequate workforce, a healthy economy, and a strong army. Okay, the world says a lot or most of the world's problems are due to overpopulation, which would mean more children. So have you ever known, I don't know, I notice these things because I think about this. Whenever developed nations go into a third world nation to help them, one of the first things they do is bring in the plant, Planned Parenthood with its philosophy of sterility and barrenness because they think that's the solution. You need to cut your birth rate. Many of the world's countries have believed this lie, especially in Western Europe, and they've worked really hard over the years to attain zero population growth. The problem is the world's wisdom has failed them. Now a lot, of, I don't know if you saw in the paper the last year, a lot of the Western European nations are not even replacing themselves. They're not reproducing themselves at a rate to replace themselves. And so now there's not a, enough young people to care for the aging population and their economies are severely struggling. So now these countries that were following the world's wisdom are now paying their people to have more children. Does it make you think that God's word is right? Okay, God, I believe that God's word points to a totally different cause of third world poverty. Proverbs 13 verse 23 says, Abundant food is in the fallow ground of the poor, but it is swept away by injustice. So here it's saying the cause of, of famine and starvation is not too many people, it's injustice. Deuteronomy 28 says, Deuteronomy 28, I love it, it's a four in my Bible, it's four pages talking about all the blessings that will come upon an individual or a nation that follow God and seek him first, and the curses that will come upon a nation or individual who forsake him and go after idol worship. It says that poverty and lack will come to a people or nation who worship false gods. So here the enemy points to children as the problem, and God says something totally different. Who are we going to believe? Rachel showed me two verses that say the same thing. Psalm 105, verse 24 says, He caused his people to be very fruitful and made them stronger than their enemies or adversaries. Exodus 1, verse 7, But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. She noticed that every time God's people were fruitful and mighty, then they became then they became mighty and had dominion. The fruitfulness and the multiplication came first, and then the dominion was dependent on that. And um, I, have, I don't know much about the Muslim religion, but I've heard that that is part, they understand that truth, and it's part of their strategy to gain world dominion. And I'm never, I never see Muslim, you know, where do you see Muslim families in um, Spokane? But when we traveled overseas this summer, we were in a lot of airports, we ended up seeing a number of Muslim families. Every single one of them had at least five children in tow, and one had eight like we did. And so I don't know if the Muslims believe children are a blessing, but they truly understand that they're the key to dominion. God promises us lots of blessings in Deuteronomy 28. I'm just going to summarize some of them here. He promises we will abound in, the pros in prosperity in the offspring of our body, the produce of our ground, the offspring of our beasts, the increase of our herd, the young of our flock, and our basket and kneading bowl. He promises health and favor and headship. And out of all these blessings, I can't think of one that we shut off but the blessing of children. Like, 
God, please don't give me more money. I have way more money than I need. I've never heard anyone say that. Or, I am so healthy. God, please do not give me any more health. Um, or favor, like, God, I have way more favor than I need. I do not want more favor. I mean, we, we, with open arms, welcome every one of God's blessing. It makes me think that we might not believe God when he says children are a blessing. Um, as, you look, as we looked at all these verses, I, I see a pattern developing. It makes me think, whoa, something's going on here. At, on every issue that we looked at, what the world says was totally contradictory to what God said. And it makes you realize that as believers, everything the world says and promotes should be highly suspect to us as believers. Um, it's not surprising, though, because God told us what our enemy is like. In John 8, it says, God tells us Satan is a liar and the father of all lies. John 10, 10 says, a thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. So Satan's mode of operation is lies and deceit, and the resulting, um, what he wants to see happen as a result of lies and deceit in our life is he wants to rob from us and steal from us and kill us. So um, you can see this pattern of lies lived out perfectly in the story of Adam and Eve in, um, in the Garden of Genesis 2 and 3. So I'm going to read these verses and then comment on them. Genesis 2, 15 through 17. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. He commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die." Skipping ahead to Genesis 3, 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast, and he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. The serpent said, You shall not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So I see the enemy doing four things here, the liar. I see the liar at work in these four ways. First thing is he questions what God says. He said, did God say? And then in that questioning, he twists and contradicts what God said. Did God say you can't eat from any of the trees of the garden? Now, God hadn't said that. God said you can eat from every tree in the garden, not just the one in the middle. But he twisted it. Then he contradicted what God said. He said, you won't die. God said, you will die if you eat from that tree. And fourthly, he made Eve doubt God's goodness. He said, God knows in the day you eat from it, you will be like him. So how does a liar do his work today? How does he lie to us women regarding the issue of children and motherhood and homemaking? Well, first, we, we've, looked and we've seen that God says children are a blessing. But what has he told us as women? What, what assignment has he given us as women in the earth today? What role has he assigned us? We need to look at that first. Um, there's five things I want to look at here to, to help discover that. You can tell the purpose of something by its design. Like you can tell a bird is made to fly because it has wings. We don't have wings. We can't fly. Um, a fish is made to swim. It has fins and gills. Um, a duck is made to paddle on the water. It has webbed feet. Obviously, men are not made to give birth. They lack the apparatus. <laughs> God gave us women wombs and breasts so that we could bear and nurture children. We can learn a lot about our God-given design by, what, by how he designed us. We can learn a lot about our calling by our design. 
In Genesis 3.20, we can look at the first woman to learn something about our design. Bible scholars always say that if you look at the first of something in the Bible, it's really significant and it has a lot to speak to us. So it said, um, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. So the very first prototype of a woman was called a mother. Again, that's really significant. In Genesis 3, 16 through 19, this is where God pronounced curses upon the serpent and upon man and upon woman because of their disobedience. I think it's really significant. Um, I think God addressed the design of the man and woman by the curse that came upon them from their sin. He cursed man in his work, and he cursed woman in childbearing. I think the curse was most felt in our primary God-given callings, work for a man and childbearing for a woman. Okay, and, first, and now in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 5, verses 11 15, through 15. Now, this is a section where they're trying to address the issue of widows in the church and how the church should take care of widows. And it was saying, now, older widows, if they, you know, they, cared, or they were married to one husband, took care of children, um, did good works in the church, and they're over 60 years old, those are true widows, and the church should take care of them. So there's a problem with younger widows. They, um, they forget their, marriage, you know, their first marriage vow, and they have sensual desires and want to get married again. And so here was the instruction given to um, young widows. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, to bear children, to keep house, and to give the enemy no occasion for reproach. Now, that could be dismissed as just an instruction to um, young widows, but it's really reinforced in Titus 2, verses 3 through 5. And this is where older women are encouraged to mentor younger women and teach them these things. Encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own, own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. And then lastly, if you look at Proverbs 31, woman, she is held up as the model of kind of the perfect woman. And like Pastor Moni already quoted that verse in um, Proverbs 31, verse 27, it says she looks well to the ways of her household. And I know some people can look at the 30, Proverbs 31 woman and say, well, she worked at home, but I think you could make a case for um, her working outside the home, having an outside career. She sold belts to tradesmen and she invested and bought a you know, bought a field. But I think in that culture, everything was done out of the home. Business was conducted out of the home. I think everything she did could easily have been done right in the midst of caring for her family. And no matter what other endeavors she was in, she did not neglect her family because the summary of everything was she looked well to the ways of her household. So if we take those verses to put them together with God said children are a blessing, and he says that um, at least our main the main part of our calling is to love our husbands, love our children, and to be workers at home. Well, how does the enemy carry out his lying, deceiving work in today, in the here and now? He, I think he does the same thing that he did with Eve. He questions what God says. He contradicts and um, twists what God says. And then he gets us to question God's goodness. And so I think it sounds something like this today. Did God say you have to be stuck at home with a bunch of children? Who does he think he is? What about your talents and abilities that are being wasted or your college education? It's just down the tube. Are you, why don't you do something important with your life? Get out there and do something exciting. Why don't you get out there and make some money? Prove you're as good as a man is. Serve, serve, serve. That's all you do. Why don't you get out of here and go do something important and find self-fulfillment? Get out of the house. I think that's exactly what the enemy has told 
women through the women's liberation movement. He's gotten us to believe that children really are not a blessing at all, but they're more of a hindrance to our self-fulfillment in our career. And he's really demeaned the role of homemaking and motherhood and make us think of it as a, as a second-class calling that's not worthy of our time and attention. Um, and he has worked really overtime to get us to leave our God-ordained place of responsibility. I think as we've bought his lies, it's had a huge detrimental effect on our society. I know when, um, when I was little, women were just starting to enter the workforce. Um, it was a brand new thing. So it's, it's for a couple generations now, it's been really strong. And um, this is really pointed, but um, I want to read this quote by Dr. Dobson. And I'm sure all of you have heard of him. He's a man who's given his whole life in ministry to strengthening the family. And um, he was asked, if you had to indicate the one factor that has done more damage to families than any other, what would it be? He responds, it would be the almost universal condition of fatigue and time pressure, which leaves every member of the family exhausted and harried. Many of them have nothing left to invest in their marriages or in the nurturing of children. 59% of boys and girls come home to empty houses every afternoon, during which almost anything can happen. They say that's when most teens get involved with sex and drugs during those hours. This hurried lifestyle also puts great pressure on women. Many of them are trapped in a chaotic world that constantly threatens to overwhelm them. Some of these young women grew up in busy, dysfunctional, career-oriented households, and they want something better, and yet financial pressures and the expectations of others keep them on a treadmill that renders them unable to cope. I have never said publicly what I will share now, and I will be criticized for saying so in this context. But I believe the two-career family during the child-rearing years creates a level of stress that is tearing people apart. It often, devise, it often deprives children of something that they will search for the rest of their lives. If a scale back from this lifestyle, which I call routine panic, ever grows into a movement, it will result in wonderful results for the family. It should result in fewer divorces and more domestic harmony. Children will regain the status they deserve and their welfare will be enhanced on a thousand fronts. We haven't begun to approach these goals yet, but I pray that a significant segment of the population will awaken someday from the nightmare of overcommitment and say the way we live is crazy. There has to be a better way than this to raise our kids. We will make the financial sacrifices necessary to slow the pace of living. I believe that God in his love and great mercy has given us women a sphere of influence that is for our good and for the good of society. The enemy gets us to believe that God's withholding good from us by kind of sticking us at home, you know, saying, you have to stay at home. The enemy gets us to rebel against that assignment. And I believe that's to our own destruction and to the destruction of those around us. I thought of um, this, this verse came to me in Psalm 2, verse 1 and 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. It's like, that's, um, it's like the enemy wants us to view God's laws and his ways as really restrictive and like, you know, get those off of me. I don't, you know, God, you're not going to put that on me. And it's like the feminist movement has said, you burst, the, you know, burst those shackles of oppression of children and the care of the home off and, you know, seek, seek fulfillment somewhere else. In other words, they're saying, God, don't you dare put your laws and your ways on me. Contrast this, though, with, uh, with Hosea 11:14, And this views God's laws and ways not as like restrictive bonds, but like as fetters of love from a God who loves us and knows what's best for us and knows how life works best. It says, when Israel was a youth, I loved him. 
I taught Ephraim to walk, and I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of a man with bonds of love. It's like the Lord, I, you know, the Lord just led me to that verse because I thought, what a different view. Fetters that restrict and bind or cords of love from a loving God who says, here, let me show you how life works best. The feminist viewpoint is that God is withholding good from women by burdening them with children in the care of the home. God's view is that he's given us a significant role to play in our place in the home. I have a feeling the enemy has so viciously assaulted this truth about children and homemaking because he knows how important it is. I think he knows how it is. I think he knows its importance much more than we do. I think hell trembles when it thinks of women faithfully fulfilling their calling in their homes. And I think it trembles when it thinks of people really believing that children are a blessing. Scripture does tell us that there's a war between women and their seed. And I thought a war is never, ever fought over insignificant issues. It's always fought over things that matter and count the most. Go back in Genesis 3 where we were. It says, Because the serpent deceived Eve and she ate, God cursed the serpent and said, I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And enmity means a fixed or rooted hatred. So the war between the serpent... And the woman and her seed began here in Genesis at the very, very beginning with the curse. And I believe you can follow this war all the way through Scripture, all the way to the very end in, Genesis, in Revelation. The, the war began in Genesis. You can see it, um, the hatred against children in the demonic. They would you know, sacrifice their children in the fire to demonic gods in the Old Testament. That was a hatred of children that came from the pit of hell. You can see it in the lives of Moses and Jesus, and I'll show you that in a minute. And it goes through to the very end in Revelation. And um, I'm just going to summarize part of Revelation 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. The dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So here it talks about a male child who was to rule, and that was Jesus. And it talks about how the enemy... Um, tried to devour the child at birth, and you think, now what? But remember when Jesus was to be born, Herod heard that a rival king had been born, and he ordered all the newborn, um, all the newborn, what was it? All the newborn boys under two to be slaughtered. The same thing happened with Moses. God was raising up a deliverer again to accomplish his purposes in the earth, and the ruling powers of the time Pharaoh um, ordered that all the baby boy, all the baby boys were to be drowned in the Nile River. To me, that is a, it's like a prime example of the enemy going after the seed of the woman who was coming on the earth to accomplish the, accomplish the purposes of God. And um, in Revelations 12, it, um, at the end, it says, the dragon was enraged and went off to make war with the rest of her seed. So we begin with a war against the woman and her seed in Genesis. You see it in the lives of Moses and Jesus all the way through to Revelation in the end. So you, th you might ask, well, why is the enemy afraid of the seed of the woman? Well, in Genesis 3, God said that the seed of the woman would crush Satan's head. And the ultimate fulfillment of that, of that um, 
word is Jesus. I mean, Jesus crushed Satan's head on the cross and in his resurrection. But we are children of God, and um, we are called to crush Satan's head in our generation. And our seed, our, us and our seed are called to do the very same thing that Jesus did. In Genesis 2.18, listen to what God told Abraham. This just leapt off the page to me one day. It says, Abraham, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And I thought, wow, the enemy knows how important and powerful our seed are. And that's why he's done everything he can to cut, get us to cut off our seed. We're sons and daughters of Abraham, and his seed was to um, crush Satan's head and to bless all the nations of the earth. And we are sons and daughters of Abraham, and our seed is called to crush Satan's head and to bless the nations of the earth. We don't realize who God wants to bring forth through our seed. There is such potential in our seed. Um, we have no idea what God wants to do through us. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you some examples of how history would have been different if the generations prior to us had believed the currently held views about children and severely restricted their childbearing. Many of the leaders God used to bring spiritual awakening to the world through, throughout history have been later born children. These men would have been, would have been denied life in our culture of planned parenthood. Have you ever heard of Charles Finney? He was the great evangelist of the 1800s, and he was often called America's foremost revivalist. They estimate that one million people were saved under his ministry. And it's not like to massive crusades today where a lot of people fall away. They say that most of his converts stayed true. He was the seventh born of seven children in his family. John and Charles Wesley were great revivalists of the 1700s, and God mightily used them in England and in the United States. They were the 14th and 17th children of their mother, Susanna Wesley. George Whitfield was instrumental in the first great awakenings in the 1700s. He also was a seventh child. Jonathan Edwards, have you ever heard of the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? Well, that was from him, and he was also known as one of America's greatest revivalists. He was the 11th of 11 children. His mother had 10 girls and then had him. <laughs> so she was a blessed woman. She had lots of girls. So these men were the reformers and revivalists of recent history. And think, they, it's like they were the seed of women who changed the course of history and crushed Satan's head in their generation. God wants to do the same thing today in and through our seed. Who does he want to bring forth through us? We have precious, precious seed. So our calling to bear children and then to raise them in a nurturing environment go hand in hand. And the enemy has worked so hard to separate us from both callings. So what about the lie that homemaking is a job of drudgery not worthy of our time and attention? Or what about the lie that homemaking is a second-class calling that we need to be liberated from? So um, remember in 1 Timothy 5, it said younger widows were to keep house. One day it dawned on me, I thought, oh, it's exactly the same thing God told Adam. In Genesis 2.15, it said the Lord took the man, put him in the garden to cultivate it and keep it. So Adam was told to keep the garden, and young widows were told to keep house. Well, you know, it's like, what a, what a mamby-pamby assignment, you know. It's like the enemy, I mean, the enemy has really worked overtime to ridicule that assignment. But as I started looking up the definitions of these words, it's like God just went boom in my spirit. And I thought, wow, that is not a mamby-pamby assignment. Wait till you hear. To keep house, there it is, means the master of the house exercising authority. 
It means to govern or manage a household. So the enemy would lie to us and make us think that motherhood and homemaking is a place of no influence. That is so not true. It's a position of God-given authority and responsibility. To keep house means to be the master of the house, exercising authority. It's a place of authority and dominion. It is the place of authority and dominion that God has given women in the earth. Look at the definitions of keep. Now, I love definitions, but they open the word so much to me. These are all out of Webster's Dictionary. Keep means to retain in one's power or possession. It means not to lose or part with. It means to have custody for security or preservation. It means to preserve from falling or danger. It means to protect, guard, and sustain. It means to keep in order and to supply with the necessities of life. Now, we're told to keep house, and it can be... It can kind of be reduced to a thing where we think, oh, that means I have to spend my life washing dishes and scrubbing the floor and dusting. And uh -uh, our job goes so much farther than that. If you can um, yeah, leave that up. If you can go back to the beginning of keep. Are they all on there? There. Okay, we are called to keep our home and its occupants in our possession and power, not to let the enemy gain control over them. We are called not to lose our children, but to keep them secure and to preserve them from falling or danger. We are to protect and guard our family and supply them with the necessities of life. Okay, let's look at another definition, then we'll kind of put it all together. Titus tells older women to encourage younger women to be workers at home. Again, that can be construed as a life of drudgery. The enemy tells you if you do that, you're going to have a life of menial labor and drudgery. It changed it all when I looked up the word work and worker. It means to form by labor, to mold or shape, to manage and lead, to produce by action, labor, and exertion, and to direct the movements of. And look at the definition of the word mother. It comes from the word, it means the mud or the matter, the stuff from which all things are made. And I thought, whoa. It's like being a mother and a homemaker is not a meaningless job not worthy of our time and attention. I believe we have it within our power not only to mold and shape the lives of our children, but of all of society. And I'm going to say that again. I believe we have it within our power as mothers and homemakers to shape not only the lives of our children, but also the lives of society and all that goes on in society. What goes on in the home has huge significance for what goes on in the church. And what goes on in the home and the church has huge significance for what goes on in society. We have been given such a place of power and dominion. Adam was not faithful in the assignment God gave him to keep and guard and protect the garden. He lost dominion and control to the enemy, and the result was death to all of creation. So I, I took these definitions, um, and I thought, well, okay, what happens when we do what Adam does? What if we are not faithful in our job to keep our homes? What happens if we get distracted and taken up by other things? What happens when we do not faithfully keep our homes? We leave our families unguarded and unprotected, open to danger. We allow them to fall into a place of danger where they are susceptible to the enemy's lies and deception. We lose possession of our, over our children's lives. In other words, we lose our godly influence in their lives. Our homes and lives fall into disorder and chaos. Our basic needs are not met, and our family members have no place of peace, covering, or safety. Contrary to the lies of the enemy about homemaking and motherhood, 
look at the Proverbs 31 woman. I'm not going to read it, but I think she, um, you know, if you think about a capable, blessed, productive woman who lived up to her full potential, I think she's like the ultimate picture of that. Um, and, and, and the word says enemy came to steal, kill, and destroy. The enemy comes that they might, we might have life and have it abundantly. I believe the Proverbs 31 woman led a very abundant life right in the middle of looking well to the ways of her household. I have been a full-time homemaker um, for 20, well, for almost 30 years now. And I can guarantee I have not lived a bored, unstimulated, unfulfilled life. I think, I think just as the Proverbs 31 woman was a vivid picture of a woman living up to her full potential, I think that's what God has for us. I'm just going to share some examples of things I've done over the last 26 years of being a mom um, that kind of bear that out. As I said, I've homeschooled my children for 21 years, and we did that because God led us to do that, and he did never tell us to stop. I, just, I was down at my mom and dad's church in Oregon, and the pastor quoted a book. By, it's an older book by a man named Peterson. I haven't read it, but it said, um, a long, the name of the book was A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And that, I love that. I thought, that's what motherhood is. It's a long obedience in the same direction that bears huge fruit and dividends. It's like I can see God at the end of that long obedience in the same direction saying, well done, good and faithful servant. But it's, like, it's not like God didn't say, well, I want you to homeschool your children. And then I start and I go, oh, this is too hard. And it's like, he didn't tell us to stop. So we've gone, we've just done it. And it's been the hardest thing I've ever done. And like I said, I'm not a patient, um, patient person. And it stretched me past my limits multiple times, especially my two sons. My daughters have been easier, but homeschooling my sons has been, you know, a challenge. But it's, it's a decision when all, everything's said and done in my life, I will look back. I will never, ever regret that decision to do that. Um, my children have grown up so fast. My nest is half empty now. Four of my eight are gone. And I am so grateful for every day I got with my children. I am gifted administratively. I guess one of my spiritual giftings would be administration. And I could have worked in an office job, and I'm sure I would have done really well. But instead, I've used that administrative job to, um, to bless my home and to serve in the kingdom. In our old church, we were in a, had a fairly large church, and our, our church believed in the blessing of children. We had lots and lots of kids, and I helped um, administrate the child care program for 15 years. And that means that I scheduled and oversaw 150 parents and volunteers. And so that took a huge, that was a way I could use my administrative gift. Um, currently, I help, I'm the administrator for our ministry, which we run out of our home. My husband travels nationally and internationally extensively, and I administrate that. And then I, when um, God's kind of led me to just help administrate little needs that come up in the church, I see a need, I think, oh, I could do that. I have administrative gift. It's easy. So I'm not, I'm able to, I've been able to fully use my administrative gift the whole time I've been home. I'm very detail-oriented, much more so than my husband. And so um, it, with his and my mutual agreement, I oversee our personal finances and the finances for the ministry. Over the years, I've learned to do tons of things I didn't know how to do. Like, just like I wasn't a natural mother and just like I um, wasn't a natural, you know, I, I was not a natural homemaker. I, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. I had one sister and she did everything. And I'd say, teach me to iron, mom. She goes, oh, you'll learn later on. I'll iron. And so when I went to college, I didn't even know how to run the washer and dryer in the dorm. It's like I was so spoiled. And I did take 4-H. I knew how to make brownies and cookies. But when I got married, I did not know how to cook. 
And so um, I made it my goal to learn how to cook. And um, that's been fun. I, I, somebody would, back in the 70s, everyone was making bread. So I'd say, teach me to break bread or teach me to can. Or, you know, if I found somebody that was a good cook, I'd say, here, teach me, teach me. And so I've learned to be a fairly decent cook over the years. I learned to quilt and cross stitch. <laughs> I've learned to quilt and cross stitch and needlepoint. And the fun thing is, I remember my first um, cross stitch project. I was so proud. It's like the first thing I'd made for my home. And it was so fun to work with my hands and do something that made my home feel like richer and more um, personal. Um, I've learned to refinish furniture. Um, we've hardly bought anything new ever. We've always bought used this and that. So I stripped all our dining room chairs and refinished them. And, um, and then I, I went from being a total computer nincompoop to a person that's really fairly adept and can do most of our ministry stuff and finances on the computer. And so it's like I've been, all those things have been learning and stretching for me, but it's like, I have not sat at home being a vegetable for 26 years. It's like I've grown and expanded and become a much more vital person. Um, I've sewn and wallpapered and painted our home probably numerous times. And the whole reason being, I thought, God's called me to be home. I want my home to be a place of beauty I enjoy being. And then it ends up blessing my family and others. And so that's been really fun. Um, we cared, we, when Jim's mom was divorced and um, lived on her own for 40 years, and we kept saying, we want to take care of you, and finally she consented. So for the three years before she died, we used money of hers, added an in-law addition to our home, and cared for her. And again, that wasn't easy and fun all the time, but in, in retrospect, again, it's one of those things when I die, it's, uh, I'll never, ever regret having done that. I'm so glad that she didn't have to be alone those years, and that we got, like Jim had never got, been close to his mom, and those three years kind of were like a time where he got to be with his mom and enjoy her. Um, when two of our children were in high school, we helped them start home-based businesses. My son um, had his own lawn mowing business, and he started, it was so funny, he started out when he was 11. He had, he had a lot of energy, we had to have him do something. And, he didn't, and so he would, he would pile lawn bags on his mower and walk three or four blocks, and you know, lawn companies would walk by and smile at him, and Luke would be with his little lawn mower. And, and, but he, he had, you know, in the end, he earned a lot of money, had a lot of customers, had a truck and a pickup, you know, and a, and a trailer and all that. But that was a new experience. We'd never done that. And then when Julie, our fashion design daughter, decided she wanted to sell skirts at Pig Out in the Park, and um, so she made 100 skirts over the summer, and we bought a tent and made business cards and a banner. And we'd never done anything like that before. We're not business people. But again, it was a stretching experience, and it was fun. And then over the, I, I kind of counted up, I probably have this wrong, but over the last years, we've housed, a, you know, somewhere around 15 MC students or young adults. And um, that's, again, that has not been easy. We've had a lot of foreign students and you can be challenging. No, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, we've had lots of, you know, it's been really fun, but that is not always easy to have somebody in your home and God's dealing with them and God's dealing with you as he deals with them. And, but um, again, that's been such a rich thing for our family. It's been rich for our kids and rich for us. So when Jim and I got the revelation about children being a blessing, and then as he expanded our understanding of what it meant to be a homemaker and a mother, it changed so much in my life. Scripture says that without a vision, the people perish or they lose hope and they want to give up. And I know that, um, like I said, motherhood is not a short-term calling. It's not like, well, I had the kids. It's like, now what do you want me to do, God? It's like you have the kids and then you raise them. And like Jim said, a mother gives birth and she's giving birth to things in her children's life the rest of their lives. Whatever they go through, the mother's heart is... She's their main prayer, their main intercessor. Her heart is in everything going on with her kids. And 
But if we don't have God's vision of motherhood, all we can see are like piles of, you know, the sink's full of dirty dishes and piles of dirty clothes and dirty diapers and snotty noses. And I mean, it's like it's overwhelming and we think, am I ever going to get out of this? And, but when we think God's thoughts about our calling, then it gives us a heavenly perspective. And that's what all the revelation I've shared today has transformed my life and changed. You know, it's like I just think, oh, I'm so blessed. I'm so blessed to be doing what I'm doing. And I know I'm changing the world doing what I'm doing. And that, that revelation has been so important to me. Um, I, I believe we've lost something over the years. Um, I, the home used to be the center of society. All of life radiated out of the home. Business, most homes were businesses run out of the homes. Education was done in the homes. Spiritual training was done in the homes. Hospitality was done in the homes. Um, social welfare was taken care of in the homes. The poor and the needy were taken care of in the homes. Home, it's like the enemy has kind of picked those things away from the home. And it's like the homes almost become a place where most people just go to shower and sleep and maybe occasionally eat together. And I believe the home, God has so much more that he intends the home to be. I think God wants, well, you think about it like right now, the, the schools educate our children. We look to the youth group and the church to spiritually train our children. We look to the government to take care of the poor and needy. And this is, I mean, I am guilty of this too. We rarely even open our homes for hospitality anymore. We go meet somebody for coffee at a coffee shop. And I do that all the time. I thought, and, and um, Patty had me to, the last time we got together, she said, come to my home. It was so fun. We stood by her refrigerator and looked at all her pictures. I said, who is this? And who is this that's important in your life? And it was so fun. I thought, that's what, God wants our homes to be the center of life. So no wonder women are bored. It's like he's, he's kind of taken everything out of the home and women sit at home and think, I'm bored stiff. God wants our homes to be so much more. One book on mothering that I read recently said our homes should reflect heaven, that they should be a little bit of heaven on earth. And um, over the years, I've gone through a lot of warfare over this message. And at times I think, am I crazy? God, is this really you? And um, not long ago, several months ago, I was literally crying before the Lord one morning saying, God, I really need you to affirm this message to me. I need you to confirm it to me. And I think in one of the and one of the epistles, Peter is praying, and it's like he's praying, and then immediately, God, somebody shows up at the door and answer to his prayer or vision. It's like, and so as soon as I, I had just got done praying and crying in the midst of it, and somebody came to our door, and it was James and Janet Fish. They came down from Colville and showed up on our doorstep. We got to spend the day together, and it was like, it was so fun. And she said, did I tell you about the young adult woman from Colville that came to your house last year? And when she walked in the door, she started crying. I thought, I kind of was alarmed. I thought, oh my gosh, I like, what did we do wrong? Why did she start crying? And she said, well, when she came in your door, she started crying because she thought she could feel this was a real home. And I think it was something she hadn't grown up with or been blessed with. And it made me realize the world is looking for real homes where, where there's a little bit of heaven on earth for people to see and experience. And you know, the neat thing about that is you don't have to be married to have, to have a home with a little bit of heaven. You don't even have to have kids. You can be single and no kids. I've known some single young adult women who they are like the ultimate homemaker and everyone knows they make the best meals and their, you know, their home is warm and inviting. And that's something all of us can do no matter where we are in life. And God was so good. Not only did he send Janet to me that day with the story, but he's quickened the scripture to me and it was really funny. I thought, God, what does this have to do with motherhood and homemaking? And why'd you show me this? And it's in John 14, three. It says, if I go and prepare a place for you, 
I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And then I got it. I thought, he goes to prepare a place for us. And just like that, we're called to prepare a place for our families and for all those other people that God brings in our lives that he wants us to love. And God showed me three things out of that verse. The first thing is that he's going to prepare a place for me. For me, just like he has me in mind. And I thought, God, either, like you hear different things, either he's preparing a room or a whole mansion for me or whatever. But I thought, now, if he was preparing a place for me, this is kind of my fleshly thinking because I don't know what heaven's going to be like. But I thought, well, it probably has some really cool old heirloom furniture. You know, like, I don't like real modern stuff, but really cool, you know, cool stuff. And it'd be a good supply of dark chocolate. And... (laughs) Probably a good historical Christian fiction novel, because that's one thing I like to do to relax. And I thought my kids would be there, and my grandkids would be there. I thought that would, I mean, it's like God knows me. Like, he put things there that are really special to me. And I thought that's part of our calling as moms. It's like he, um, it's like another book I read on homemaking said, our homes and families are worthy of somebody's full-time attention. And I thought, it's like, there needs to be somebody fully focused on the family and like, what's going on with you? And, oh, I'm watching you. There's, I sense something there. And um, it's like, I'm, I'm home. That's my calling. And so my antenna are always up. And um, I, I'm usually the one that senses, you know, there's something going on with Molly. Let's talk with Molly, Jim, and see what's going on. Or James is struggling right now. We need to pray about that. And um, so just like God cares about us individually, God puts mothers on the earth because he knows we each need that personal attention, somebody whose whose life is like calm enough that they have time to focus on me. The next thing I notice is that he is preparing. And I realize um, that's part of our calling as moms. Life, if like this meeting wouldn't have happened without preparation. We come, we show up. We don't know, Pastor Moni. I mean, who knew that Pastor Moni sits and listens to a CD and tries to copy down words? I mean, we come and sing the song and think, oh, somebody just typed that up there. Or Bruce and Pam, I mean, coming here. And there's, there's just lots of preparation. And I thought, life without preparation is not very special. And um, I'll, I'll, these, are, these might seem overboard, but some examples of preparation that I've um, done lately as a mom. When my kids all come home is my very favorite time, and they were all going to be home at Christmas. So several months in about October, I started thinking, okay, God, they're all going to be home. And um, God, here's what I want it to be like. I want us to have rich fellowship. I can see us sitting in front of the fire and talking and sharing and having family meals and laughing together. And and, um, so here's the, so I started praying into Christmas vacation clear back in October saying, God, I want to speak this into our thing. And God, help there be no conflict. You know, everyone comes together and there can be conflict. Help it be conflict free and help us really enjoy and love one another. So I started praying. I also planned a month's worth of meals. So all my best meals were right when they were going to be home. And I said, Luke, what do you want? What do you, what are your favorite meals? And I know Julie loves chicken pot pie. So that was when she was home. And And then I said, Jim, I want to have lots of fires because we have this great fireplace and we love to sit around. I said, Jim, it'd be way more special instead of you grumping every time I say, will you make a fire? If you just chop wood, have it on the front porch, and then every time we want a fire, we just grab it. And so I just, I mean, it's how it was. And Christmas was so fun. I mean, God's so honored. There was no conflict. It was like the most blessed time. And I know that part of that was because of preparation. And when my two daughters got married, you know, it's like, 
you, every, you know, everyone dreams like, what do I want my wedding to be like? And I prayed and prayed and prayed in the months going up the wedding saying, God, I want it to be a really, really special time where, you know how sometimes people can go to an event and they kind of go, okay, oh, we put in our time, let's go now. And I thought, I want people to love being there and to have rich fellowship and to think this is special. Like sometimes you go to weddings and they feel ma- the magical is kind of not a very spiritual word, but it's like just a special presence. And I just started praying that into my daughter's weddings. And, and I had tons and we, we couldn't afford to hire people. So we did all the work ourselves. So I'd lay awake many nights planning food and this and that and this and that, because I'm very detail oriented. And, but all that preparation went into making the weddings like really special that there, there are going to be events we always remember. So that's part of the special calling God gives us as women and moms to prepare and to make life special. The last thing I noticed is that he's going to be there in the place he's prepared for us. I don't think he's either preparing a room or mansion for us and leaving a welcome note saying, hope you like it. No, it says he's going to be there. And we, it's like we get to be with him. And I thought, it's like God calls us as women and moms to be there for our families. And um, my mom, like I said, was a stay-at-home mom, and we lived a couple blocks from school, so I'd always walk home. And my sister was more quiet. You'd have to drag stuff out of her, but I would kind of just share, blah, 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 everything. And so I'd burst in the door and go, Mom, Mom. And she'd say, here I am. And I'd run and tell her all about my day. And one day she was ironing in one of the bedrooms. She thought, I'm going to just see what happens if I don't say anything and see what Lisa does. So I burst in the door and go, Mom, Mom. It was quiet. It had never been quiet before. Mom? Mom? And she could still tell I was starting to get afraid. So she said, here I am. And she told me what she'd done. And, but I thought, you know, it's like God wants us to be there. Our families need us to be there. And I love the setup. I was thinking about how I love the setup of our kitchen and our back door because um, our, I call it our friends and family entrance. Everybody that knows us in our family comes in the back door. And the first thing they see is I'm usually in the kitchen because I just am in the kitchen a lot. I homeschool, I make meals, I wash dishes. And so f- frequently, not all the time, I'm there when my family members come through the door and I'm saying, how'd it go? And how was your day? And how are you doing? And I think that's what God wants. That, and that's part of the special role he's given us as mothers. So I've shared a lot of revelation today that um, truly revolutionized our lives and has been such a huge blessing. And so I thought, well, what, you know, you're all coming from different places. What can you do with what I've shared today? And I thought for some of you, it might help you see your children in a new light. If nothing else, um, that little baby that wakes you up, baby Eleanor wakes Allison up every night and has ever since she's been born and does not sleep well. But to think, baby Eleanor, you are a blessing you are a gift from God to me, even if you wake me up. Or that little toddler, you know, that little toddler boy maybe who takes a lot of discipline. It's like, God, why did you give me him to think you are a blessing from God to me? It changes so much to see our children that way. Some of you might even be open to putting more blessing in your quiver. And um, I'm not saying that you have to have eight children. And you know what? Really, God, I just believe God has such a special plan and purpose for each couple and that we can trust him. My mom and dad came from families of six children each, and they both wanted to have a large family. And God only opened my mom's womb two times. They've been married 58 years. She only, he only opened my mom's womb twice the whole 58 years. They only had my sister and I. And then I talked to a dear sister here who um, God only opened her womb once and blessed them with a dear daughter. And it's like, 
God, I just believe God has a special plan and purpose. Just because you trust God doesn't mean you're going to be like a rabbit and breed, you know, and have <laughs> hundreds of kids. And maybe you'll build, maybe you will be like a Susanna Wesley, though, and bring forth men who change the course of history and change the world. But um, Proverbs 3 verse, or is it Proverbs 3 verse 6 says, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. And I think you can't go wrong by trusting God and his love and his wisdom. What I've shared today might give some of you the vision you sorely need to be a mother and homemaker. Because like I said, it's not a short-term, easy calling. It's almost a trick. It's like God says, children are a blessing. We say, okay. And then he gives them to us. We go, you didn't tell me it was so much work, you know. And it really is. But um, it's worth it. But we need vision to sustain us for the long haul. And then I think today what I shared might help some of you in, or help all of us. It's like we need renewed minds to disciple the next generation. We are like the proverbial frog in the water. Like they say, if you drop a frog in boiling water, it will immediately hop out. If you put a frog in a pan of water, cool water, heat it up slowly on the stove, it will boil to death because it gradually happens and it doesn't realize what's happening. And we, even if we don't think we're influenced by our culture, we are sorely influenced by our culture and we need to wash our minds and our spirits with the truth of God and reevaluate, you know, our course, our decisions we've made, what we're telling the next generation. What are we going to tell our sons and daughters about children? What are we going to tell them about motherhood and homemaking? My husband Jim speaks in discipleship schools all over, and he said that even in discipleship schools, even in the church, young women are afraid to raise their, you know, like he'll say, what do you want to do? They're afraid to raise their hand, almost embarrassed, like, I want to be a mom and a homemaker, and that should not be in the church. I believe it's like, I think even in, disciple, in our discipleship schools, we need to be careful because we're raising young women and women. We're telling them, you, God is going to use you to change the world. We forget to tell them, though, that one of the big ways he could you, do that is through you being a mom and a homemaker, that that's one of the greatest callings and assignments in the world that you could have. And so we need to affirm that, and we need to really look, are we, are we discipling our kids after God's word? I'm going to close by saying, I believe the old saying that says, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. And I believe that motherhood and homemaking are a calling and endeavor that we can fully give ourselves to and find full satisfaction in. And it's something that we can heartily encourage our young women to give themselves to without any reservation and to say, you will be blessed beyond measure in that. So thank you.